we obviously are continuing on uh, in Leviticus, and we pick up this evening uh, with the uh, cereal and fellowship offering. So depending on what translation of the Bible you have, it either says meat, meal, cereal, grain. Uh, it is a cereal or a grain offering. Um, it's not meat back when that was translated for the King James Version. That would have been meat would have meant meal or would have meant grain. And so it is a cereal and then a fellowship offering, which would have been an animal. And if you've read through chapters two and three, and we're going to read through them tonight, you'll notice that on the fellowship offering, it was a larger animal. And we'll understand why, because you're going to eat that. It's going to be part of a meal or or a joyous celebration. And so these two are going to complete what is called the, uh, I probably can't get mine, there we go. are going to complete what are called the ones for a soothing aroma offerings. These are the ones that were a sweet savor to God. These are what, what they're grouped together for that reason, because obviously the burnt offering has a sense of atonement. For some reason, Theron put a line here. I know why I'd put the line for me not to wander over it and be out of the video, but it's extremely tempting to get close to the line. It's like, I'm a child. It's like, oh, you put a line there. I think I'm going to stand right on that line and see how close I can get to ruining the video, you know? So he just edits in someone good looking when I step off. So that's why I like to step off stage. It just allows me to look better once in a while on, on camera. But either way, we're diving into these um, sacrifices or offerings And these fill out those three. Uh, Burnt offering dealt with atonement. It dealt with the idea of dealing with sin. And we'll talk a little more at the end about it. But the burnt offering dealt with your perspective about who you were. You see yourself as God sees you. You see the need for atonement. Now we're going to get next week into the sin offerings, the the sin and trespass offerings or purification and trespass offerings. And those are going to deal with atonement as well. But these three are grouped together because... As we look at them, they fill out the soothing aroma or sweet savor to the Lord. Uh, Understanding these sacrifices, though, is is critical or crucial. Uh, Winham notes this. It was in terms of these sacrifices that Jesus himself and the early church understood his atoning death. Leviticus provided the theological models for their understanding. And so we talk about this, and I hope to keep reminding us as we walk through Leviticus that this is not just a list of things that the Israelites used to do that now we can scrap off. It was like God buying himself time before he sent his son, but instead builds the foundation upon which the sacrifice now makes sense in Christ. And so we're, we're driven to that. And so when we're looking at this and coming back to that Bible project layout, And again, it doesn't mean we'll follow everything perfectly, but we're still in that top left corner. Chapters one through seven, we're still in the ritual sacrifices, dealing with those two. And we're dealing with the ones on the left that are more of that, when it says grain and fellowship, a more thankful side of things. Though they depict, even though it's thankfulness and it's connectivity and that's woven into them, they also are going to depict dedication and commitment in different levels. So the burnt offering, of course, was burnt completely up minus the skin, and that was given to the priest, but nothing was consumed by any party. And that was that all in this understanding of the cost of sin and the understanding of what God does for us. These other ones are going to be a little bit different because you're going to find different people consuming part of the offering and how God's going to use it. So we're going to continue jumping into these sacrifices and start off with the cereal offering or the grain offering. Uh, Here is an offering that consisted of fine flour, baked cakes or wafers, 
or as the first fruits came in, you could roast fresh ripened grain and offer that as well. One of the reasons why it's majority fine flour or cakes is when you harvest the grain to get flour, you have to do what? Sift it, mill it. There's processing work involved. And one of the things we're going to talk about is as we look at the cereal offering is it is going to lean into our work. And if we're going to apply it to our lives, our career and what we do, it was also an offering given as a present. So the word even for cereal ties to what would be considered a gift presented to God as an act of worship or as a tribute that you would give to a king. And so one person said it was a tribute from the faithful worshiper to his divine overlord. This was you bringing, quote unquote, almost like a tax, but it's not a tax, it's a tribute. It is a, here is my life. This is what I do. This is what I work for. I'm gonna have Justin, if he doesn't mind, coming up here and grabbing a mic and reading Leviticus 2. You have to read into a microphone, otherwise no one can hear you, you know. And again, just another face on the video so it doesn't bore the world. I'll let you read Leviticus 2. And again, we're going to try to every time read through these chapters and just try to listen as he reads and let the words flow over. We should always want to hear God's word uh, as the primary source. Justin? When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour <laughs> oil on it and put frankincense on it. And bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as, a, as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the, to the Lord and when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. The priest shall take from it the grain offering, its memorial portion, and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made of flour with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering. Of your first fruits, fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed with new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. 
into the cereal, and I want you to kind of walk through. I know there's a lot of repeating there, but notice how many ways you could offer it. Frying pan, griddle, and it was fried, it was baked, it could have been fine flour. There's a reason why it says fine flour. If you have fine flour or coarse flour, what takes more work? Fine flour. So just understand, and we're going to get into this, how it's tied to their work. Uh, when you grow crops, how long does it take? Anyone do a garden successfully? I didn't do I did a garden, but unsuccessfully. So that's different. It takes time, right? You plant, you sow, you see it grow, you cultivate it, you work it, you harvest it, then you process the food. Only at the first fruit offering, which would be considered uh, also a cereal offering at times. If you notice, <coughs> there's no leaven there's no honey. The next verse says though, that you can bring honey as an offering, but you can't offer it as a cereal offering. Lots of rules tied to it, but those are things that are either alive and can decay or cause decay and depict impurity. And so all of those things would be on their mind. <coughs> Who and how often on this offering? It was offered individually by the people. Timing is not overly specified, but What we can know from our reading is that oftentimes there was the burnt offering and then a cereal offering because this was also offered by the priests morning and evening. And so this, like the burnt offering, was much more consistent than a lot of other offerings. There was always a constant grain offering given, and you're going to see a little bit how that functions. Now, what is the background and some of the thoughts that go into this? The worshiper would gather their grain and then prepare the grains. They either had fine flour or roasted new grain. Now, understand this. When can you have roasted new grain? When is that possible? There's only once, right? When you harvest it for the first time. So there's one time of the year that you can do roasted grain. The rest of the year, you don't go dig in the grain bin of unprocessed grain and offer it three months later. No, you put work into it. You you have to grind it, you have to process it to have fine flour. The Lord allowed you to bring fine flour and you would add oil and frankincense to that or you can bake it and oftentimes it was baked. Again, tying into the next phase. So you take flour and then if you have people in your home that can bake, they turn it into cookies and it's delicious, right? So that's, that's how life works. That's the, the process of flour always getting to cookies, right? That's my thought. But either way, someone would bake it. I want you to keep realizing the work that goes into this that it's tying into what you do, the work that's there, but you're always doing something. If it baked, it contained no leaven, no yeast, and it was always sprinkled with oil and then given to the priest. The priest took a handful of the mixture that had oil and incense on it, offered it up as a memorial portion. So you give all of your offering to the Lord. This is a critical thing that they would do. All of it went to the Lord. The priest then took a portion, the memorial portion, would add incense to it. He would burn that on the altar. The remainder was for the priest to eat within the sanctuary. Now, the offering was accompanied with oil and with incense, making the offering sweet unto the Lord. And it depicted the connection to his spirit, his Holy Spirit. Oil always had that tie in to the Holy Spirit's uh, work and also showing praise and prayer. That's what incense would often signify. And so by adding to your work the presence of the Holy Spirit and the praise and prayer that's depicted the incense, you can see what the Israelite is walking in and how he's thinking. As I mentioned, the honey and leaven were excluded because they both represent impurity or decay. And as you saw on the chart from Bible Project, impurity, death, all of that pointed away from the holiness of God. And so you wouldn't include that in your baking. 
Now you would offer honey as a first fruit as you gathered it, but you would not be a sweet smelling savor to the Lord. It wasn't part of these types of offerings. Notice also that salt was included as a sign of the covenant. And it was possibly even a promise to the Levites of the continual tithe. Uh, It preserved the food and provided seasoning. Uh, Salt in its preserving capacity points to holiness. It is the opposite of the leaven. Because what happens? Leaven is decay and it's this idea of death. Salt keeps things from what? Spoiling. Uh, When you were worth your salt as a soldier back in the day, we think of salt as just something that everyone should have. Like this is this is a given. Back then it was precious to you because it was the way you're going to keep your meal and meat. So it didn't kill you when you ate it. Right. And didn't stink like to high heavens. Go on from there. A side note, Greeks and Arabs would often conclude a covenant, seal it by eating salt together. So when you see how God orchestrated the use of salt, its implications. And so he says, don't exclude the salt from the covenant. Don't forget what we have agreed to. Don't forget what I've called you to. Don't forget who you are and what you're going to adhere to. It was an offering from your labor, though. It was the livelihood of a worshiper coming from the fruit of the crops. And I know if you raise... Um, animals, there's a lot of work there, but when you're cultivating something, it just depicts this patience that's there. Uh, You can't suddenly just make grain sprout up. You have to go through the season. You have to go through the ups and downs. You go through blessings of rain and you go through dry seasons. You walk through uh, that journey. And so this specifically would tie to what they did in their livelihood. This is the idea of work as all of your life. Um, and it, emphasize, it emphasizes in this moment the sanctity of labor and represented that all of your work was given to the Lord. One person noted this, it showed a commitment of your material possessions, highlighting your complete dedication to God and what you did for a living. I could go around the room and all of us oftentimes identify by what we do right? I am a pastor or I'm a salesman. It's like two sides of a, you know, dangerous coin. Just kidding, right? I'm like the third worst person in the world and you get an exclusion clause, right? If you're an engineer, you are an engineer. If you're in growing, you grow, right? We identify with what we do. It speaks to who we are. It speaks to the all of our life. Now, if you're in this society, it's an agrarian society. It's a different economy, right? They work different than we do. In our world, there are farmers and there's engineers and there's builders and there's mechanics and there's you name it. And everyone has their role and we all buy and trade from each other. In their society, pretty much everyone was farming. Pretty much everyone was growing something or cultivating uh, crops or animals. And that's what Wenham remarks is the cereal offering symbolized the dedication of a man's life and work to God. It, it, It typified what you did. This is the all of who you are given to him. And I, I put a, a thought question here. I wonder if we see our work as a valuable component to be offered to the Lord. How many of us and how much in our culture work is seen as a necessary evil, right? I need to work so that I can get a paycheck. And so what do we do mentally with that? 
work loses its value, its purpose to some extent. It is only about, I need to get my money. And so what will happen? And sometimes people do a great job and they'll sludge through it, but they've lost the value that is vested in them and in their work there. And they start drifting away from how that is something that God wants to use and that God values. And I know everyone always uses it. Well, if you have a tough job, you just work. They, they work it for the Lord and they over-spiritualize it. But the fact is for the Israelite, they understood that. They understood that what they did was valuable, that God saw it as important, that God saw, when I say intrinsic good in what you were doing, because he did not add work after the fall. Work came before the fall. Adam tended the garden before he fell in sin. And so the work in and of itself was not wrong. And what God has the Israelite doing now is coming with an offering that is showing their dedication of everything they do for the Lord, recognizing that their ability to have grain is from God's hand. If you go to Ezra or Nehemiah, I think it was Ezra, and he writes to the Israelites, your crops are failing, everything's going wrong, you're not worshiping the Lord, you're, you're chasing money, and God is making sure you never can get it. And he's tying them directly to God's blessing in their work. The offering had a substantial portion going to the priest, but I want you to note something. The offering was not brought to the priest, and he gave a portion to the Lord. The offering's brought to the Lord, and God gave a portion to the priests. The people were never supposed to visualize that they were paying their priest. But instead, they offered to the Lord, and that's why it's instructed this way, and the memorial portion is given in, and God gives to the priest what they would need to live on. They're not to see themselves as the supporting caste. What happens when you think you're supporting the priest? What, what happens to your mindset? Yeah, you're in charge. Yeah. Now think about churches today for a second. What happens if the church says, we, we pay him, he needs to do what we say? Because when we give to the Lord, we actually don't. There's a tie to it that says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm covering that portion. My gift takes care of that. Now, there's accountability that doesn't give this person, and I stand in that role here, uh, just a blank check to just do whatever they want. There's accountability. But you see the danger when we come as worshipers, and if your gift is tied to control, how an Israelite would have known that their gift is not linked to control of the priesthood, who's in charge of the priests? And trust you me, he made a strict boss as in two of Aaron's sons are going to die in a couple chapters because they mess up just a little bit on how they offer things and God was not pleased. Uh, God can handle his own people. But they would have known, I'm not in charge. And so it's, it's good to have that. I want to tie into this some of the reasons it would be important for this to take place. It prevents ownership of the priest. It prevents presumptuous behavior and thought by the people What happened to some of the kings? I think it was Uzziah was a great king, did a great job. But at the end of his life, he decided to do what? Make an offering. 
The rest of his life he spent with leprosy, I think, crippling disease, painful, never repents, dies three years later. I think he spent almost 40 years serving the Lord, decided that he would take it upon himself, presumptuous behavior, because he's lost sight of the fact that God took care of his priest, that he didn't, that he should have been bringing his offering to the Lord and the Lord would take care of it. And at some point he thinks, I should just be the one doing this. Who better than me to offer to the Lord than the king because I would be second in rank there. And you see how presumptuous behavior can destroy even a whole life that was lived for him. It prevents priests from playing to the people to get more. Because I've been villainizing all the givers, but now I'm going to go villainize the priests. Because if I know that you control what I get, then I'm going to look at you and say, hey, that's a pile of grain he has there. And I look over at Eric with his measly three apples, and I don't want nothing to do with that. I'm going to cater to him because he has more for me. Because when you perceive this person as the one who gives to you, you, in our human sinful nature, tend to play that way. And as you come give Eric, and you know that Kenny doesn't like apples, but Theron sure does, you start playing to Theron because you're bringing apples, and you can control the situation. And so God kept it very clear. What is the connection in the cereal offering? The offering connects and calls us to serve with the all of life, centering in on our work. And I'm going to use a different word that we use today, our career. Your career, your livelihood is something that God values. So it's not something we belittle, but also something he expects to have from you. And it calls to a, a constant dedication. Uh, most jobs, I know that COVID's kind of messed this up somewhat, but in the past, typically you went to your job pretty much every day of the week, right? Most people work Monday through Friday. A lot of people have to work over the weekends and cover different shifts. But we understand that work is a day-to-day -day thing. If you found a job where you can work one day a year, good on you. But I don't know of many that's actually a productive job, right? Most of us have to, to pound the pavement and go through it. I don't know if that's my phone or if it is, I apologize. If it's yours, well, you apologize later. So, um, <laughs> but it's the day-to-day. -day. The cereal offering brought to mind to the worshiper an everyday dedication, and one author wrote rededication of our everything, even the mundane of work and the grinding out of another day to God. And one writer notes this, every place of employment can be an altar where a dedicated Christian can produce labor that is sanctified and blessed by God. And you start realizing something because they're offering up of their work. Now, it's not going to be some corrupt, terrible offering. They're going to walk in with the right heart, the right mind. God expects them to approach him clean or pure in that context. And so as you go to work, now you think about what you're offering up to the Lord. And I know we, we know this concept from the New Testament. I just want you to see that it wasn't born there, but actually has its roots back in Leviticus, that everything you do is for the Lord. It's Him. So when you go to a job and you struggle with value of that job or the importance of what's taking place and the temptation is to slough off a little bit or do it as good as you think you can get by, I still remember a friend of mine, this is right out of high school, I'm at college, and he worked for an engineering consulting company. This will scare everyone right now. 
and they would do slump tests on concrete and soil tests. And his cousin taught him how to fudge the numbers. So you didn't actually have to test it. You could just come up with the answer so it's working. And I'm thinking to myself, what bridge did you test? Because I don't want to drive over it, right? Because what they did is they had a shortcut. Do this in the middle of summer. You got your numbers. It passes. It'll be, it'll be fine. One, what do they see their work as? Unimportant. Didn't have value. If you're an engineer, Justin, how, how much fear does that put in your heart to know that the numbers that someone may have dumped in your lap don't line up? How good is the math with bad numbers? Awful. Landon is in advanced math, so he's in these trigonometry problems, and, and his, he's great at math, but he will miss something early on, like a little step, and then at the end, what's the answer? It's wrong. <laughs> it's never right. But everything looks right. So this person walks in, and they don't see their work as valuable. It's just to get a paycheck. Cousin taught me how I can get by with faking it. Well, that's not an offering to the Lord that he's pleased with. That is not an application of what the serial offering is. Another writer notes, the worshiper responded by giving to God some of the produce of his hands in serial offering. It was an act of dedication and consecration to God as Savior and Covenant King. This is everything's for you. It was an act of service again that just says in their heart to God, you are everything. And everything I do is for you. And again, the ancient Israelites showed visually that they were committed in the all of life to God, showing through their sacrifice, their persistent rededication or highlighted focus of serving God in everything. Hopefully, as we walk to work tomorrow, we walk to work saying, that's how I serve God. That there is value in it. And let me go a step further, that there's worship in it. Because oftentimes there is this great divide. And if you've heard it, um, it's not my favorite way that people describe it, but they'll say, well, he's dedicated his life to full-time Christian service or full-time service to the Lord. And it's a misnomer. Who's in full-time Christian service? Everyone is. Christians are. It's suddenly to elevate above others because, oh, well, I get paid by you, so now that's full-time and that's better. No, everyone is engaged in it. So it, it, it strips from us this almost lie about who's dedicated more because it's a comparison that is worldly in its context. Because every believer is to be all in for God and everything they do is to be worshiped to God. So how you execute your work should worship your Lord and Savior. It should point to him. It should glorify him. And the Israelite is coming in and it's a very physical reminder of that. The New Testament principle, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I want you to see something. The roots go all the way back to the cereal offering where you're giving everything you have to the Lord. I have a couple questions to kind of get us thinking maybe. Uh, this is just to start it. How committed is the all regular work of your life to Christ? And really, I'm looking at a group of people on Wednesday night. And so what, what I'm asking you is how cognitive are you during the day of working for the Lord? 
And I know there's mundane in work. I mean, I had to work for my dad all my life. Still do, you know. And then he sells the business. I have to work for two of my brothers, younger brothers. And they're amazing if they're listening to recording, which they're not. So I don't have to lie, right? So it's, right, it's easy to get all caught up in it, right? And trust you me, there was work at the greenhouse that was mundane. I hated sticking poinsettias. Hated it. I did such a poor job, he let me burn the trash, which is my favorite job. Um, the, the fire department only came every other week. It was no big deal. Nothing to worry about. There's mundane work, right? We all have it. No matter what you do, there's a portion of work that has is, that is got a mundane portion to it. I know Mr. Melampian teaching music. <laughs> there was times when it got mundane, didn't it? <laughs> you can attest to it, right? And if you are <coughs> home homeschooling the kids, there's a point where it gets mundane. I come home at lunch, and I think Heather does this to torture me. She's like, oh, Avery needs to read her book to you, and you get to sign off. I'd rather go without lunch. I mean, I love her, but this is tough. Now, she reads a lot better now, so it's really enjoyable. But I came home for lunch, and I was leaving, and Clay's like, Dad, can I show you what I figured out? And Heather had already told me. He's already, he's a boy. He's in first grade. He's slacking off. He, he wants to go play, so he doesn't feel like doing his work. And so finally, Heather said, stop it. You're going to do this. You're smart enough to do this. That's the problem having your mom for a teacher. There's no slack cut. And so sure enough, in one day, he perfects it crack down. Now he wants to show me. And I'm like, great. That's what I'm hoping for at lunch, to read through those little letters and numbers and stuff. But right. And I think about, I, I told Heather, I said, after hearing my own child read the book that slowly in K-5, I'm like, every K-5 teacher needs more money, double, triple, quadruple, whatever it is, listening to this all day, there's no way they're sane. They need summers off, whatever they need, they need to get this, because um, this is more than I could handle. Uh, and again, it's my own children, and they read well, uh, at least that's what my wife tells me, just kidding, they do read decent uh, there. But how do you see your work when it gets tedious? Do you see work as an act of worship? The Israelite would. Hebrews 13, 15 to 16 reminds us, Be him, therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Are we in our day and in the mundane worshiping God with what we do? So I put a question here. How do we take our non-agrarian careers and apply offering them sacrificially in worship? Because let's be honest, who here is a farmer? And it doesn't count because you're growing a greenhouse with computers. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> a legit outside growing grain, corn, or livestock farmer. And none of you retired farmers either. I want to see that. I'm real like you got to sweat it out. Most of us work in an office or a cozy greenhouse away from the weather whatever it may be. So how, how, do we, how do we take that? How do we grab hold of what we do? How does an electrician use his work for the Lord? Non-agrarian, he can't bring a grain offering. How do we do this? What are some ideas we have there? That's the first step, right? When your work is done because it's always as an act of worship. How about outside of that realm? What are other ways we can do it? There's pride in it, right? There's making sure that what we do is, has quality because that goes there. Other ways, yes, sir? There's honesty and integrity that goes into it. Yes, ma'am? 
using the skills you're given. Can we see outside use? And here's a question to throw out there. If you have a skill set, can it be used outside of your workplace where you get a check for it? Is that a possibility? My grandfather, this is on my mom's side, uh, was a greenhouse personality. So he was, he, was a, he was a plant, basically, grew, was always, seemed to always be successful over. But you never knew of a break between using it on a mission field or making money with it. I think he always said it was, he called his business as generators, generate to do stuff outside of that. I can attest to it just so I can embarrass my own father, but that's what he modeled for us. So as I'm in my 20s, I had a passion for missions that comes from my dad. I remember him going to Venezuela. I remember him going to Africa. I remember the stories and the, and the talk about how your work doesn't have a split off there. Justin, you were here Tuesday. What were you looking at? Drainage, because you're a, what kind of engineer? Civil. And a tech always made fun of him. But either way, I'm just saying there's always me. But he's checking out runoff because we have flooding in there. He's using what, what he has for something other than a paycheck, right? Can we grab the skill set that God's given us and apply it there? Uh, if you were on the Guatemala trip, whether you could preach or whether you could speak Spanish, Tom, you can attest to this. How busy were you handing out medicine? Learned what medicine sounded like in Spanish to put it together well enough to, to get people meds. Look at that. The man is on top of it, right? <laughs> He's there. What I'm saying is, how do you use what you're gifted in? Did you use your math while you're down there, at least to correct mine? <laughs> right? There's skill set that comes up. How can you use it? And sometimes we only do what we have fun in, right? We're going to go there and... and uh, if you're good at managing people and you go down, can you help organize a group of people to be on the mission field? I was trained to manage people. My father-in-law says I'm the best delegator he's ever seen. Trust you me, more people, the happier I am, move them around. When I go on the mission field, what I like to do is I like to teach. That's what I like to do. That's my preference. I like to go in there, sit down and teach a class. But when you come with a big group of people, you're not teaching a class. That's not what you're going to do. When we're on the medical trips, I like logistics. I like organization. That's what I do. And then when the day gets started, I'm parked on a cooler usually or a chair, and I'm translating for Joe Hornbrook because I do speak Spanish, and so I put what I can do to use. These are all examples, and I think all of us kind of know that, right? We're, we, we dive in with what God's given us, and I think we just, I'm hoping that what we can see from the cereal offering is how can maybe we do that even more in our lives. I know some of you, I think, Bob, don't you go mow lawn periodically, gain nails and take care of things? That's using retirement for the Lord. <laughs> now no one wants to retire. Uh, <laughs> right? It's, it's taking what you have and the opportunity. And I wanted to pinpoint different ones of you guys here to recognize one thing. You're doing it. You're engaged in this. You're, you're diving into it. Let's be cognitive of how we can take what God has given us in a non-agrarian way, right? We don't have grain to offer, and I don't think you need to bring your Fruit Loops here in a bowl for us to do a burning portion of it. You need to grab hold of what you have and make sure that's dedicated to the Lord. In first and foremost, as you walk into employment, you do the best job you can. You're, you, you are the best you can be at that. You commit to that. And then how can you then take what you're able to do 
and move on from there. Mr. Hines, I think you and Mr. Hines spent months, it was six months, wiring the kid zone, rewiring it. Look, I am thrilled about that because I grabbed a wire that was supposed to be dead, and trust you me, I was wired after that. It was to my elbow, and I'm like, you know, the shock of grabbing something that you know was turned off, it just overwhelmed me at that time. And then Mr. Hines says, no, we're not going to have that in our building. Every wire stripped out of there, all industrial wire redone in an old block building. Torture is what that is. You don't see a single wire, didn't cut a single corner, fished wire down blocks in a 60-year-old building. But I guarantee you the kid zone is safer than any place in this building when it comes to wiring. Want to know why? I know Mr. Hines and my dad was there handing him wrenches, but he was there. <laughs> but he, they were, I know it's done right. I know it's done with excellence. Why? Because that's how he does his work. That's worship. And we need to recognize that. So as we walk through Leviticus, I want to consistently ask ourselves, if we are as diligent and regular in our dedication and commitment to Christ as the Israelites would have been. And I'm not trying to put them on a pedestal, because trust you me, the Old Testament is full of their failure, just like we can see our failure chocked full and how we, we, we sin against Christ, how we fail to live up to what we should do. But God had orchestrated an economy for them that would drive them to a constant dedication to him, a constant reminder that the all of life was for him. And so we conclude now the burnt offering and now the cereal offering, and we move now to look at a peace offering, or as is often called the fellowship offering. <clears throat> and this is Leviticus 3. And in a minute, you'll be reading. I'm going to say a few things, and then I'll have Jason read Leviticus 3. This offering follows the burnt and cereal offerings because it was another one that brought a sweet savor unto the Lord. And then the likeness stops. It was unlike them because it was completely optional. It did not form part of the regular daily offerings. It was also unique in that the worshiper and others ate part of the animal. The burnt offering was completely consumed. The cereal offering was brought to the Lord. Memorial portion burned and the priest ate it. And now you come to the fellowship offering and a large portion ends up being eaten by the worshiper along with their family and friends. And one author wrote this. He said, even though it wasn't an everyday offering, it was the, one of the favorite of the Israelites. And you can guess why, right? You're all eating. It's a feast. It's a celebration. It was offered for a variety of reasons, possibly a confession offering associated with trying to overcome a hardship, maybe thinking or making sure there's no sin attached to it, or coming in confessing God's goodness and grace. It could have been a fulfillment of a vow, and oftentimes it was just a free will offering. And in that context, as a free will offering, it looks a lot like God asked us as Christians to give, because we're supposed to give how? Freely cheerfully, right? God doesn't want your begrudged gift dumped into his lap. That money has no bearing. It is no offering to the Lord. He wants you to be cheerful about it. And I always tell people, if it comes to giving and you can't be happy, get happy. <laughs> so, you know, I'd love to tell you not to give and, and don't if you're not going to do, but get happy about it because that's what God wants of you as a believer. But uh, Jason, if you don't mind reading Leviticus 3, do you want the podium here? I didn't offer to Justin, but he's younger, and I see the old age on your head, and I thought, man, he could use it. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, 
If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the tailbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Chapter three. And in Leviticus, it's, it's concerned with the process there. We're going to dive into some of the components of what it looks like. So I put the tabernacle up and I forgot to have, I had, I wrote down for Theron, I said, put tabernacle and I meant the drawing, but he put the words. So you got tabernacle there. Use your imagination from last week. I should have checked that before I dove up here, but go back to the tabernacle picture. Uh, what you see, remember the ash pit, you're looking at the altar, you're looking at the entrance coming in. Ash pit is here, altars here, laver or cleaning is here. And then the main tent is further to the left. If we're going that way, north is this way. The worshiper brought the animal into the entrance of the tent of meeting, the same as they did the burnt offering, laid the hand on it, the same as they would do with the burnt offering, identifying with the animal. So now we're going back to an animal and they're laying their hand on the head. Um, it's most likely at this time that, that the, the worshiper would identify the reason for the offering. They would articulate it. So a prayer was answered, a vow was fulfilled, and then the worshiper would kill the animal. If you remember with the burnt offering, the worshiper killed the animal. The priest collected the blood and splashed the blood up there. So as a worshiper, you didn't just bring your animal. And I want to keep on reminding us, maybe just because I always thought they brought the animal, sat there and watched the priest do what they do, and then went on. But no, they're very active. They're cutting the animal's throat in a way that the blood would drain out. They're butchering the animal right there. The priest is doing the blood, the, the offerer is cleaning it up, those kind of things. Now, some of the same processes take place, except for 
in this offering, and some of this you'll see as you dive into numbers, it articulates more of the feasts that go on, but for us to kind of get a grip of it, um, the animal was completely cut up. It's not necessarily stated here, but obviously needs to be butchered. Uh, and so far, it looks a lot like the burnt offering, yet from here on out, it's different. Instead of the whole animal being burned, only the kidneys and the fat covering the intestines, the long lobe of the liver are burned. And if it was a sheep, it had the fat of the tail cut off and burned as well. And God says why, right? The fat is for who? For him. That is to be offered up. And that was considered the best portion. That, that the fat was a part of saying again to God, you get the best. The priest would end up keeping the skin as with the burnt offering, but they also received the breast of the animal on the right thigh. You'll notice with this offering, there's no birds. There's no little bird to offer in this offering because you don't have anything to eat and offer up. And so this being a complete free will offering, you would have to bring an animal of, of some size to the equation. The ceremony ended, though, with the remainder of the animal being consumed by the worshiper, though the worshiper had to be ritually clean to do so. But let's be honest, every commentator likes to say that, but the reality is you had to be clean to approach the tabernacle. You had to be clean to walk in there. You had to be clean to be in the camp. And so we're going to see that cleanliness stuff as we get to 11 through 15. It's going to come up, and we're going to recognize that they would have understood that um, but the rest of it, if you dive into numbers and, and some different areas, you start realizing that after that, depending on what the offering was for, if it was a free will offering, they had two days to eat it there. If it was for a confession of some sort, they had one day to eat it. But you would then cook the food and you would have a feast right there in front of the, the tabernacle. You would eat it in, and this is the idea, in God's presence. Now, I'm going to go through the variety of, of applications. It was confession uh, times sometimes leaked off into a difficult circumstance where deliverance was necessary. Enemies are pressing in or you're sick and the worshiper thought possibly there is a sin in their life that needs to be confessed for that hurdle, that, that break in relationship to be removed. And so they would bring a confession offering. Oftentimes they would bring this after they were delivered. And as they process this, they recognize God's mercy in delivering them in spite of their sin, right? We should see that oftentimes in our life. God's mercy extended to us, his grace, even though we were sinners. And so they would bring an offering to acknowledge that to God. Oftentimes there was a vow made. Uh, uh, the ancients in tough times were often promising to do something for God. I will offer to you here, Jacob, right? If you'll bring me back, very conditional promise, which as we looked at in Genesis should not be extolled to him. He was a highly manipulative person, and that was yet another manipulation of God. And God just shows us there in Scripture what he did, his faulty worship, yet God still worked through Jacob. But all that to say, he made a vow, and they come and fulfill the vow. And so they would bring the commitment. Hey, God, I made a vow to God. It came through. I'm, I'm coming to follow through with the commitment I made to God. And then the free will one, which, again, as I, I talk about links, oftentimes the giving that we do now, this free will offering linked to God's unexpected and unasked generosity. This is, in my mind, the Israelite that wakes up and realizes they live a great life, that God's blessed them, that he's protected them, that he's done wonderful things. And it's no confession they made. There's no enemy conquered. Maybe there's no disease that's been taken over. Or maybe there was, but there's no vow made or promise. Instead, this is them waking up and looking around and seeing God and recognizing 
that the air they're breathing is from God, that their ability to work is from God, their protection from their enemies is from God. And then the Israelite comes aware of those blessings or as a way to be aware of them, brings now an offering, gratitude for the unasked for gift. Or instead, gratitude for the often neglected gift, what God is giving to them. And it speaks to somebody who's tapped into seeing things from God's perspective and recognizing how blessed we are. It's hard to be grateful, right, when you're complaining. And it's really easy to be a complainer. Just, I know it comes natural to me, right? Well, I wish my back wouldn't hurt so bad. I wish the day was better. I wish there was more cookies. I wish there was more steak. I wish there was more money. Right? Does it ever end? We can complain very easily. This is almost the complete opposite. This is someone waking up instead of a complaining attitude. They look out and they see God's goodness. They see air. They see life. They see a house. They see a tent. They see animals. They see crops. They see leadership. They see a lack of slavery. They see what God has done. And then they give a free will offering. It would show that the worshiper wanted to give the best of his life to the Lord. They burned the fat. And then it concluded with the meal, a special meal with God's presence near in a comforting and special way. We're going to see God's presence come in where, remember, Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle because of the break in the covenant. That's the beginning of Leviticus. God's presence was so awesome to the Israelites, they were petrified. And so they said to Moses, we don't want to get close. You go close. There's Exodus for us. So there's this abject fear that comes with worshiping God. But here is the idea of the comfort of God's presence. God's presence is near. And I put it's being at home with your favorite comfort food style gathering. It is home for the holidays, except for too many times the holidays are stressful and no one wants to see their kids anyway. Right. So it's it's that kind of idea. I'm trying to we think of the wedding feast, but it doesn't work. Right. Because it's like one in a million weddings where it's not stressful or the food tastes good. Right. So it's it, we have an idea. So take your ideal meal, this this perfect gathering together. And this is what it is. And it's joyous and rejoicing because it brought warmth and assurance and it brought joy knowing God's presence. The holy God is there. Is God eating with them? Well, no. God says that in Psalms. He says, do I need your blood? Do I need your goats? Do I eat like anyone else eats? No, he does not. If you look in the Old Testament, they'll bring an offering. Let me cook for you, right? Lot Was it uh, Samson's dad? Let me cook. What does he do with the offering? Burned up. So it's not because God is now sitting down to a good mutton steak with them, and this is going to be an amazing time, but instead they're eating in God's presence. And it's, it's the idea, think of the best, most intimate meal you've, you have with your family, that it goes perfectly, right? And in essence, the worshiper is eating the offering as it is given back from God. Now I'm going to go back to what I said before. When they offered the offering to God, the cereal, God gave the priest the portion They didn't just give God the fat. They gave God the everything. And God gave back to them the feast. And that showed them that they're receiving back from God his life to go on with everything. His his gift for them to enjoy living life. Because the animal was God's. A portion goes to the priests for him to eat and partake in the sanctuary area. 
and the rest is given back to the worshiper for them to enjoy a meal and time in God's presence. And so family and friends would join in and it's celebratory. So the offering reminds us of how amazing and wonderful our God is. He is the God that gives to his creatures wonderful blessings and gifts on earth for them to enjoy it. So as they take pleasure in what was hopefully a well-cooked piece of meat, and and meat wouldn't always have been on the menu. It was somewhat of a luxury. They are reminded that God is giving to them the goodness. You ever think, and I think we say this, and possibly as you get older, you talk about that you you savor a meal. Uh, Right now, my son is 16, and he is content to eat any image junk. Pizza, burgers, chicken tacos, Little Debbie's potato chips. Just today, he goes, he's eating, his plate is empty. And I say, you got to water the plants that you forgot to water yesterday. Go water them. He says, I'm not done eating. I say, go water. He comes back in. His mom, of course, remembers. I don't care. I'm his dad. So I might go back to school. Heather says, you still hungry? Yes, he's hungry. There's the bag of chips gone. And Heather says, you need to eat something else with the chips. Like, well, he's going to eat all the chips gone anyway. You know, you're going to give him granola bars and everything else. It's like at a house and home, but he just wants all the, the, he doesn't understand yet, though they still do. They get a great steak. They don't savor it necessarily like someone else would, right? but it's the savoring of the food. And as you enjoy that food, you're reminded of God's goodness. He gives to his worshipers the ability to enjoy and rejoice in the life now provided by him. Now this flies in the face of the depiction of God as a killjoy. That the world says God is just harsh, demeaning, rough God that just breaks down people. He doesn't want you to have any fun. He wants you to have no enjoyment in life. And the, the, this offering negates that. It's, it's, it, it flies in the face of all the lies that the world would say to Israel about who God is. Instead, we find him the author of joy and in offerings rightfully given to him, he orchestrates a feast for our pleasure. This offering celebrates our God who is near and present who brings joy and rejoicing, who calls us into his covenant and his relationship. Uh, Some have seen this connected to our communion service where we partake of his blood and his body in that sense, um, connecting us to him, rejoicing in that remembrance. And I can see a slight connection there. I see it more as the free will offerings we give to him and how he's blessed our life and enriched our lives with his gifts back to us, that, that it comes from his hand. So ask yourself, I put this, are we rejoicing in God's presence? Does being in his presence bring you you joy or does it bring you dread? If coming to church is something you check off, then that's dread. If coming to church is a chance to be in fellowship with his children, to sing praises to him, to, to give of your time back to him, and rejoice in what you can learn about him and grow in him, well, that's being rejoicing in his presence. If going to your scriptures is a mundane task you check off, that's dread in his presence. To go to scriptures because that is life and breath to you, and that's going to change your day and change your character and change your life. You may not know it, but everyone around you will. That's joy. So this concludes now our offerings of a sweet savor, 
uh, the burnt offering of a total commitment to God's perspective, the cereal offering of a total life and specifically career and labor for him, and a fellowship offering of total joy and rejoicing in him and his presence. Now, the systems of offering, as I said, were not just some random rituals God instituted to buy him time. Instead, they're given to the Israelites to understand a couple things, the weight of being God's people. When you bring a burnt offering, you understand the reality of sin. You understand the reality of acknowledging sin and understanding that God is the only solution for that sin. Uh, they would think like God's people. We would have his perspective and also that they would rejoice and find joy and pleasure in being God's people, in knowing and experiencing God's presence. And I know I've gone too long. Here's my wrap up thing. As believers, part of his body, his church, his children, do we grasp the weight of being God's people? Do we address the world with the real weight that sin is and around us brings? The responsibility that God's given us as his children. Do we rejoice and find joy and pleasure in being God's people? And finally, do we think like God's people? And as we continue walking through Leviticus, you're going to see how the mind of the Israelite was going to be constantly fixed on God, not in a, you know, have you ever dealt with little kids? Like they can't sit and you grab their head and you make them look, look at this, like find the deer. There's 30 of them. I don't see how you're missing this. You take their head and you shift it so they can see it. God's not doing that with their head, but instead is guiding them in a very beautiful way as they live their life where they're automatically, if an Israelite would follow through with what God wants, they're going to understand the weight of being his people. They're going to understand how to think like God. And they're going to rejoice and rejoice in the fact that they were God's people uh, in God's presence. I know.